Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Alan, you're in a different recording environment today. It looks like you're in a an isolation cell somewhere and deep in a basement, judging from the depths of the window well behind you. But would somebody give you a nice plant, a lone cactus to keep you company in whatever sanitarium you're imprisoned in? I have a cactus. I have a snake plant next to me, which I recently discovered is also called mother-in-law's tongue, which is very funny. Oh, why? Why? I don't know, because it's long and pointy and sharp. I don't know. I I didn't make the rules. There are these old sayings that we just need to get out of our circulation. Did you know part of the country calls it when it's sunny outside, but it rains, the devil is beating his wife? And I'm like, that's uh, a horrible I did hear, thing to say. I did hear about that. That's Upper weird. Midwest, what are you doing? That's, I think Oxy that's your sayings, corner of the man. country. No, all of, our, all of our sayings are Ludafisk related. <laughs> Fair enough. It's Ludafisky today. I feel pretty Ludafisky. What is lutefisk exactly? Smoked uh, white fish? Is that no. What it is? Oh, no. If it was smoked white fish, it would just be delicious and I could put it on a bagel. Uh, no, lutefisk is white fish that has been preserved in lye. What? Yep. When you are a Viking and you need to go a pillaging, you need to have stuff that'll last you through those long Viking winters. And uh, that's how I think we got lutefisk. And then because Minnesota is historically full of. Proud Scandinavians. They brought their lutefisk with them. Isn't lie like poisonous? It 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 is. You have to use it carefully. I mean, in the I can't believe oh I'm saying God. this. In Lutefisk's defense, <laughs> lie, yeah. I, you know, lie is is actually used in a variety of applications that are delicious. Okay. So for example, pretzels. So like there are uses for lie, but I think Lutefisk takes it pretty extreme. They just like dunk the stuff in lie. I mean it works, it preserves it. I will say I'm looking at uh, up on Wikipedia, and it does not look appetizing. No, I, I, I don't think it is. I don't think it, it says, is appetizing. And I quote: "The fish adopts a gelatinous texture mm. after being rehydrated for days prior to eating." Mm. Ge- gelatinous. Yeah, everybody likes that with a Yum. good meat product. I do feel like there's something with lutefisk being covered in lies and pretzels being twisted with lies that I find mm. nice. Ooh, the wordplay in me good. appreciates it. That's I wish good. this was one of our topics so I could make a wordplay out of it. Uh, it also says on the Wikipedia page, uh, and I quote, there are many jokes about lutefisk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think the thing I appreciate about Scandinavian culture in Minnesota is that it is very, um, it's fairly self-deprecating. Like no one, no one expects you to like lutefisk. I don't well, feel like good. actual Vikings had that sense of humor about themselves. I feel like this is a early generation. I yeah, know. exactly. I get a sense that they were pretty fun. I pretty think fun, pretty fun. I mean, you you read Beowulf. I don't know. You get a sense that like they were pretty fun. I think they could take a joke. 
doesn't Beowulf start with something that trans translates to like yo or like hey man? <laughs> that was how that one translation uh, that came out recently. That was like street slang Beowulf. Isn't that the Seamus Haney? No, I've I've read this. I read the Seamus Heaney Beowulf, and it is I it, I would remember if it started with "What's up?" <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the virtual studio of sorts with one of my other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. Who, despite being in the virtual studio, is about eight feet away from me right now, but that's okay. That's, we're just having some yes, technical issues. Our studio issues. is malfunctioning, so we're just sitting in separate offices. In adjacent offices, because exactly. Lord knows we cannot figure out how to share a microphone. I've never been <laughs> never. happier. I feel so included, everyone. <laughs> This is what Alan's life is like all the time. Oh my God. Especially on Slack when you're all like, you know, doing dinner plans and stuff. I feel seriously microaggressed upon every time. Uh, so do I as somebody with a child, meaning I could never ever go out to dinner for like five more years. Until I don't know kids if it's, it's not really dinner plans. It's more like there's a bagel in the office kitchen. Okay. How is that better? Like how it? is that better? How does that make me feel better? Like a crappy bagel. <laughs> there's a stale donut. That disgruntled voice. <laughs> with a, a tinge, a growing Minnesotan tinge, is of course our other co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to be back here with you once again to talk over the week's big news in national security, and what we are calling the, in honor of the native food of Alan's land uh, of current residents, the Covered in Lies edition, L-Y-E-S, as so many foods uh, apparently are in Mepper, Minnesota, and other Viking territory. Um, this is part of my Viking heritage. I have did not inherit it, for better or for worse. Probably for better, I'm going to say. But we are thrilled to dig into a couple of big stories because we've had a very, very big week in the news. Uh, and we have a lot to talk about. We want to get right into it. Our first topic, stuck in the Middle East with you. The Biden administration is finding itself increasingly pilloried from both sides for its handling of the October 7th massacre perpetrated by Hamas and Israel's ensuing military response in the Gaza Strip. As the right urges for stronger support for Israel, while some of the left are becoming more vocal in calling for a ceasefire, how far can the Biden administration walk this tightrope? Topic two, etu gene, 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 kind of Forrest Gump, Jenna, reading, Jenny, all right, whatever. All I could come up with for this one. Four co-defendants of former President Trump, including Rudy Giuliani's right-hand woman, Jenna Ellis, have now pled out and promised to cooperate in the Fulton County prosecution addressing alleged election interference. And media reports indicate that his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has accepted an immunity deal to testify before a federal grand jury. What does this all mean for Trump's legal prospects moving forward? Topic three, exit stage far right. Former President Trump is reportedly once again planning to exit or diminish NATO if he returns to the White House, a position his contender for Republican nominee Vivek Ramaswamy has endorsed. What is the future of U.S. participation in the NATO alliance in light of these policy positions? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. It has been a long few weeks in Israel, and President Biden uh, traveled to the region, uh, has now returned, um, and has made a number of statements that I think raise some interesting questions about how the administration is handling the ongoing crisis. There's a really striking quote from uh, remarks that Biden made after returning from Israel, where he said, when America experienced the hell of 9-11, we felt enraged. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. I caution the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. 
And I think that's really striking, both in that, you know, Biden is kind of telling the Israeli government, learn from our mistakes, um, but also that from reporting, the administration is pretty clearly one of, if not the major entity, really pushing uh, the Israeli government to put the brakes on whatever it is they're planning, which seemingly has been successful insofar as, you know, we haven't had a ground invasion of Gaza yet, which I certainly every day that goes on that that doesn't happen. Um, I'm increasingly surprised. Um, So there's been reporting about this in a number of American outlets, including uh, the Times, the Post, Axios, and also in Haaretz from the great Israeli national security correspondent um, Amos Harel, who reported that the Americans are kind of pushing back on Israeli plans to sort of go into Gaza and kind of figure things out from there and have instead been really pushing the Israeli government to think more carefully about what the long-term plans are here. All of this, of course, is happening in an environment where there are continued uh, Israeli bombardments of Gaza. There's also uh, increasing violence against Palestinians in the West Bank, which is a Uh, sort of a different part of the story, but I think one that is worth keeping an eye on as well, all of which is taking place while Israel is, of course, still processing this enormous trauma where I believe at this point over a thousand people were killed or kidnapped several weeks ago. So the question is kind of, you know, what do we think of how the administration is handling this and how much longer can it continue to kind of hold Israel back from the brink, so to speak? So Scott, I'm curious what you kind of make of the administration's play here and how it's being reported on? Sure. I mean, we've talked a little bit in the podcast already about the Biden administration's approach to Israel. That has been pretty consistent throughout its time in office, which is that it has very publicly tried to put forward a strong arm lock stance. Uh, and that does reflect Joe Biden's genuine position. I think for years in public office, he's long been a strong supporter of Israel, although he has also at times voiced criticisms of certain Israeli policy choices, particularly in relation to the Palestinians. They have pursued a line where they have been very publicly supportive of Israel, hesitant to let any big open departures or gaps between the two states emerge, but then have channeled criticism into private conversations and discussions, which often word of comes out through unofficial channels, through leaks, through things like that. Um, On the American side, on the Israeli side, both of whom have leaky, often strategically leaky national security apparatuses around this sort of decision making. This is That's basically what we're seeing here. But it really does put Biden in a very difficult position. We're seeing calls from some people, uh, again, primarily, I would say, on the political right, although not exclusively in the United States, really saying and criticizing Biden for not doing enough to support Israel. If you parse some of the public opinion poll numbers, there's a substantial number of folks who feel that way, particularly both parties, but less on the Democrats, more among independents and conservatives, uh, Republican uh, voters, that are essentially saying we need to do more, although it's not clear what exactly the Biden administration is failing to do at this particular point. And then there is this question of, well, there's an increasingly vocal contingent that you know, started early on a couple of weeks ago with primarily folks in kind of the activist bent or uh, particularly have always been vocal and concerned about Palestinian issues, but frankly has now expanded to other parts of uh, progressive circles and folks on the left saying, yikes, these civilian casualty numbers are getting very bad. What is, what is the conflict accomplishing? Why aren't we pushing for a ceasefire? 
I think you're going to hear both of those voices get louder as this conflict continues over the next few weeks, particularly if it maintains kind of the status quo, we don't get closer to a uh, ground operation. And that is a really difficult position for the Biden administration to walk that line because they essentially are doing things that probably the people pushing for a ceasefire like beneath the surface and saying, hey, we're trying to get the Israelis to think about civilian casualties, to think about humanitarian need, but not enough, at least by most a lot of people's accounts outside of government, saying, no, you need to push much harder for that. People outside the government often don't always trust these back channel sorts of conversations. They don't trust they're happening. They sometimes say, we need to have more public pronouncements, public declarations about what our position is. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I know a lot of people certainly feel that way. They want US policy to align with their personal preferences publicly, not just to advance them privately. And then Israel always has a strong contingent of supporters. And this is a situation where I think most people accept uh, that Israel certainly has a right to defend itself against this horrible attack by Hamas uh, and to do things that to need to advance its security. The problem is we don't really know what that looks like. And this all is being, I think the Biden administration is essentially taking these lumps at this point because its position so far has maintained a lot of credibility with Israelis and with the Israeli officials. And that has gotten them to really ask hard questions of the Israelis about a potential ground offensive. And that's what Biden and his folks seem most worried about. They're worried about the spinning into a regional conflict because once the Israelis go into Gaza, particularly if it's an operation that drags out, that rapidly increases the risk that Hezbollah is going to come in in the north. We're going to see Iranian proxies all throughout the region take action against Israeli and American and potentially other targets in the region. It becomes a much bigger conflict the United States finds itself in the middle of with, sadly to say, like potentially a much larger loss of life in a lot of quarters, uh, perhaps at a greater scale even than what's happening in Gaza right now, which is which is a, a really substantial and, and horrific number of civilian casualties uh, over the last few weeks. So it's a really difficult balancing act. And I, I think the Biden administration actually has handled it really well, but they're not getting political rewards for it. And I'm not sure they're going to anytime soon. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'll co-sign all the analysis that Scott just gave about the Biden administration. You know, the one thing that I would just say is I would caution against turning this into a story about U.S. diplomacy. Not because U.S. diplomacy is unimportant. It obviously is very important. Um, but because I think there is a tendency to think that the U.S. is this hegemon that is you know, pulling all the strings in the Middle East and that Israel is just a straightforward client state of the U.S. and sort of, you know, there's like a hotline between Biden's office and Bibi's office and, and you know, Netanyahu basically says, you know, does what, what the Americans want um, him to do. And I just don't think that's true. And I think that in particular, the delay that we've seen in the ground operation, and to be honest, there's such a delay that I I wonder, and we should talk about this later, whether there will be a ground operation and what that would even look like at this point. But the delay so far with the ground operation, sure, I'm sure the Americans played some role in it, but I think that they're just as important or just as likely that there are internal Israeli political reasons for this delay, Right. The, the Israelis understand that a ground operation would be hugely, hugely costly, not just to civilian lives in Gaza, but also it will kill hundreds, if not thousands of Israeli soldiers, right? Um, at this point, many of which are not just active duty soldiers, but are reservists, right? Which in Israel is just a very broad cross-section of everyone. It's just normal people, right? That are all reservists because of Israel's mandatory, uh, mandatory service uh, requirement. Again, you know, once you have the invasion, fine, maybe you can topple Gaza, uh, topple Hamas, rather, whatever that means. Uh, but as Scott pointed out, then you have to decide, well, who's going to rule Gaza, right? Is it going to be the PLA? No one really thinks that's going to work. So is Israel going to reoccupy Gaza? But Israel doesn't want to reoccupy Gaza, 
right? Maybe the settlers want the West Bank, but no Israeli wants to go to Gaza. They want none of this, right? And then even for Benjamin Netanyahu, it's actually not entirely clear what the right play is. Um, you know, he is facing the greatest threat to his political career ever. And, you know, although I sort of lost track, I think he's still theoretically under indictment for bribery, like, I, which is this kind of crazy thing that's hanging over, right? And it's hard to see how he survives this politically, right? You know, right now, there's a little bit of a rally around the flag effect in Israel, though, honestly, less than you would expect, um, given the sort of horror of the terrorist attack. Based on leaks in the Israeli press, there's like basically war is breaking out between Benjamin Netanyahu and the IDF. Everyone's trying to blame each other. In the moment this war ends or kind of winds down a little bit, there's going to be a, a Knesset inquiry commission that's going to make the 9-11 commission look like, you know, nothing, right? Child's play. It's going to make Bibi look incredibly bad. So there are reasons for him to sort of delay and prevaricate as well. Um, so I, you, just to emphasize that I, I, I think that the, the delay here is not just or maybe not even primarily due to administration pressure. Um, because to be honest, if the Israelis really wanted to go in and do a ground operation in Gaza, they just would have done so, right? Um, because they can. And although American support is very important to them, they don't fundamentally need it. I actually want to f- sort of turn that around and, and turn it back to Scott. Because I will say I have been really surprised by how involved the U.S. has been in all of these discussions. I mean, obviously, this operation, whatever it's going to look like, is different in or will be different in degree and in kind than, for example, the 2014 Gaza war. But I mean, Scott, tell me if I'm wrong. I do not remember this level of U.S. involvement and diplomacy during that dust up. I certainly do not remember this level of the U.S. saying, like, you guys really need to hang back here, both in public comments and clearly working behind the scenes. So I'm curious what you think of that. I also think it's it's worth pointing to the rally around the flag point that you made, Alan. There's some incredibly striking statistics. I don't have the the percentages right in front of me, but it's something like four out of five Israelis directly blame the current government. They they for the hate crisis. this guy. Like, I I really think Americans don't appreciate just how much they hate this guy. <laughs> but it's not just Bibi, right? It's it's Bibi and Itamar Ben Gavir and Betzalel Smolchik, right? It's it's the far right government well, the, and the, Bibi. Those guys are very hateable. <laughs> they are very hateable. <laughs> to begin with. Um, right, but who who helped like create the conditions for this kind of blow up and and drew attention away from Gaza? Yeah, those are a really, really good set of questions. Um, U.S. engagement has o- is always there in the background of these conflicts. Uh, you know, the United States is Israel's most important ally and partic- has a close relationship, particularly around security cooperation. Um, it's not always at this high level. I think that reflects just how exceptional an incident the October 7th massacre is. And the quick realization by most people, but importantly by the Biden administration, that this was going to be different than you know, cast lead and other conflicts over Gaza, because the Israelis were going to find it very difficult to not have a much more dramatic response. And that could have regional ramifications. Um, The regional situation is also heated up in a lot of ways. I mean, Israel and Iran have been in a proxy war in Syria for several years. That's not a secret for anybody who's following this. Um, Israelis have 
usually without full attribution, but fairly clearly been hitting uh, Iran-backed militias in Syria. Um, Iran-backed militias, meanwhile, have very clearly been trying to get arms to Hezbollah uh, and establish a land route uh, to be able to supply allies and proxies closer to Israel and otherwise find ways to threaten Israel, uh, including directly from Syria. Um, You know, I was on the border, uh, close to the border between Syria, Golan Heights, and Israel a couple of years ago. Um, and even then, you know, we could see explosions happening uh, in the distance. It was, yeah, that it's was a very close gnarly. territory. It was very gnarly. Uh, it, it is a crazy, crazy scenario that people have been living in the last few years, and it's heated up a lot. I think a lot more than people appreciate, actually, particularly on the Iran-Israel front. So I think the Biden administration knew this was going to be a big issue, and they have been very consciously engaged at a high level because they quickly saw that there is a big risk the Israelis were going to react in a way that was driven by outrage, by fear, by anger, and by a degree of political, uh, short-term political calculus, perhaps by certain leadership, that was going to put make the strategic situation much, much worse. Um, so I actually think, I would not understate U.S. engagement on this. I actually think U.S. engagement has been very important. I, I have no doubt there's a little bit of puffery happening, like in particular, the last few year, days, the Biden administration has had to make clear to its critics on the left, hey, look, we actually are trying to get humanitarian aid, we are, tr- aid and we are trying to get them to think about civilian casualties. We're talking to them about this stuff. That's not going to satisfy people who say, yes, but you're still facilitating it by giving them arms. And there is legitimacy to that argument as well. But I think the Biden administration's approach thus far has been, we can get more done by having a direct conversation with them. And we need credibility to do that. We get credibility by still supporting them, but maintaining these lines of communication. The other part that's really important here is if this breaks into regional conflict, U.S. security cooperation and particularly potential military intervention is part of the calculus here. Israelis have a really, really big challenge if Hezbollah gets very serious in the north of the country. Um, That can get amplified if there's proxy conflict happening in different parts of the country as well. The U.S. military presence is a big deterrent uh, in that regard. Um, They've been very clear about that, very conscious about trying to send that deterrence message beating the Biden administration. And that does give the United States uh, skin in the game in this particular strategic discussion um, that I don't think they're going to be shy about asserting if doing it in a very friendly way with the Israelis, um, because the Israelis know if this breaks into regional conflict, as is quite possible, they're going to be looking to U.S. security assistance and, again, potentially direct military involvement, uh, I think probably in the form of airstrikes and things like that. I doubt U.S. troops are going to be on the ground anywhere. Uh, In fact, I'm almost certain they they wouldn't be, except for perhaps a very small special forces deployments, things like that. But regardless, a pretty substantial response. And, you know, it's a complicated game, but there's a reason why the United States is involved in walking carefully. And I actually think they play an integral role that's not going to be easy for them to extricate themselves from. And it's part of the reason why the idea of a pivot away from the Middle East while a legitimate strategic goal and one that I think is well considered a lot of ways, can't be overstated. Like you you just can't exit such a difficult political situation very easily in a lot of parts of the region, this being one of the most problematic where the United States has the most central role. You can't pretend like that's going to go away. Um, and uh, and this really drives that point home. So I, I just want to say on, on this question of, you know, pivoting from the Middle East, as someone who, you know, is an academic and writes about stuff, kind of current eventsy and then has to wait often a reasonably long time before sending in final proofs and seeing something in print. The the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's recent piece in is it foreign policy or foreign affairs? Foreign affairs. Where where the print edition not only has the following passage, but as a pullout quote that the Middle East has never been quieter in like has is as quiet as it's been in generations. 
which just came out is uh that's just brutal like you know people are t- people are dunking on him a lot and like it's obviously not I, his fault i'm or sympathetic like that, man but i'm that's so sympathetic that nightmare. is the stuff of nightmares so i, I want to go back to something i mentioned earlier which is this question that i've had about whether or not a ground invasion is actually going to happen you know we hear we've heard about a ground invasion from literally October 7th, right? The day of, it was assumed that, you know, once the scope of the terrorist attack was um, you know, even half clear that Israel was going to have to march into Gaza, get rid of Hamas and do it as, as a ground operation. It's now weeks and we're still waiting. Now the Israelis have massed their troops at the border. They're doing training. Obviously they haven't stopped conducting airstrikes in Gaza. And so maybe they're they're trying to do that to sort of soften up the target or, or create various corridors that will make it easier for Israeli ground troops to go in once there's a, a ground invasion. But there's also part of me that thinks that if they'd wanted to do a, a real ground invasion, they would have done that by now, especially because every day that you get, you know, you move away from October 7th is every day that the narrative switches from the atrocities committed by Hamas and the graphic videos that you know are still coming out, right? And that Israel is, I think, correctly trying to get the world to watch. But the farther you get away from that, the more the attention naturally focuses on the Gazan civilians and the rising casualty rate there. And you know, I, I do wonder sometimes that you know we'll probably have a quote unquote ground invasion one way or the other, in the sense that at some point Israel will send ground troops into Gaza, and they will call that a ground invasion. And they will you know, beat their chests because they they have to, both from an internal political perspective, to you know tell their citizens that they have the Weberian monopoly on violence, like they exist as a state for a reason, and also to send a signal to you know Hezbollah and Iran and whoever else that like you know we mean business. But I, I just wonder if the sort of ground invasion we're going to get is very very different than the ground invasion that I think the vast majority of us anticipated two weeks ago, because the moment for a real ground invasion has passed. I mean, I say that, I don't know, maybe optimistically, I, I'm not sure optimistically, because of course, in the absence of a ground invasion, then presumably Hamas just keeps on Hamasing. So, I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily trying to sort of say morally or strategically, is this a good or a bad thing? Um, but it does seem striking to me. And I'm curious whether the two of you ag- agree with my, let's call it prediction. I mean, I, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Um, Scott, what, what do you think? <laughs> Thanks for coming to my TED Talk, everybody. Rational security exactly. forever. <laughs> I, I refuse to predict the future. Scott, over to you. I, I think that's often good policy. I mean, look, you, you have two really countervailing factors here, right? Like the Netanyahu government within half a day of the massacre happening said, we're reinvading Gaza. And they've always framed that as that's what's happening. We're going to go take Hamas out. You don't say something that quickly, having given a lot of thought or serious consideration about what it entails or the broader strategic ramifications of that. I mean, it was a classic sign of a overreaction. And this, frankly, I think it's the thing the Biden administration has been trying to push back on and say, whoa, there, we need to provide some countervailing pressure, even if it's soft, friendly pressure, internal conversations, but nonetheless push back on this whole idea because, man, that could make things a lot worse. Whether that ever prevails or not is is not yet clear. Remember, those commitments were made before Benny Gantz joined the war cabinet the Israelis have formed, right? Benny Gantz, but at least reports are that he has said from outside, I'm not going to sign off on a ground invasion until we have an exit plan and a, stabi- a stabilization plan afterwards. And it's not clear what on earth that looks like. So they may get to a point where 
they just decide they have to call it and not do this, or maybe they do something small and symbolic. The problem is when do you get to that line, you know? And the status quo is really brutal and hard, and they're going to face pressure on that too. Uh, there's maybe some idea, and there's some reporting of the idea that a lot of Israeli officials say, well, we can do what we're doing now for months, slowly dwindle, you know, demolish more of the Gaza from the air. And then that makes it, we just march in and we just occupy a bunch of demolished buildings. I, I think that's an optimistic window um, for what Israelis are trying to do and a kind of brutal window because that just means staggering civilian casualties over time. We have seen a, a huge level of civilian casualties if we take even with a, an ounce of credibility the numbers come from the Gaza Ministry of Health. And I think most people do. It seems verified by UNRWA and other groups that have folks operating on the ground. Almost all of them are reporting significant casualties just among their staff. It's brutal. It's awful. It's something that I think really is a real human cost that people are going to start reacting against. I think that's happening already in the international community. I think it's going to happen in the United States more and more. Um, and eventually it's going to happen in Israel too. Uh, I think it's a much longer runway, but it, it will get there. Uh, and so I think the window where you can actually sustain the current tempo with that sort of brutal cost is actually much more narrow. And at a certain point, it certainly raises big ethical questions um, if it doesn't already, which I think it probably already does. Uh, so, But, but um, of course, the ground invasion doesn't make any of the ethical questions any less, right? Like this is this is the kind of catch-22 I think Israel finds itself in, right? The window for anything is closing, but exactly, leaving Hamas exactly. in power is like obviously a non-starter. And it's not clear like what the, the <laughs> it's, it's unclear what you do. Exactly. I mean, they, they have to either like, you know, call it, they have to call it at some point. They're going to have to do some action that, that leads to some sort of continuation. I don't think it's within days. I don't even think it's necessarily within weeks, but in the, like the three month time frame, it's going to be hard to not have done something. And if they don't pursue that, then there's a domestic political cost. And if they, you know, do end up in a ground operation, then this could become a months long sort of thing. It's worth noting also the incentives are a little perverse for Netanyahu. If you think back to the 73 parallel law people draw, people say that because Golda Meir took a lot of political blame, ultimately really lost the premiership in Israel because of having failed to anticipate the 73 war, Yom Kippur war. But she stayed in office through the war, uh, right? And like the the kind of political culture, as we're already seeing from the war cabinet, is to kind of avoid upsets in political leadership. So in some way, like if Netanyahu is as dug in at keeping power as he is, keeping the conflict going is actually the way he stays in wow, power. That, that is like the bleakest take that I've heard. I, I hope even- it's not that. And I, I'm not sure even I would go that far on thinking that's the case for, for Bibi as somebody who's been fairly critical of him in the past. I hope it's not. But, you know, like... That is just the the historical model everyone's looking to. And right now, as long as the conflict isn't going, that seems to be what's holding back the waves of political accountability in Israel yet. That clearly are coming. Like, they are mounting. And it won't hold them back forever. That, so there's a countervailing pressure there. But, you know, who knows? It's it's a it's a really, really dicey, dicey situation. I should just say before we wrap that um, I'm looking at the Haaretz live blog. Shout out also, by the way, to a friend who texted me to say that the only laugh that she'd gotten about this whole situation was the fact that I mispronounced the magazine's, or excuse me, the newspaper's name during our last recording. So I'm happy to provide some levity. Um, But anyway, I'm going to say it correctly this time. The Haaretz live blog says that uh, Netanyahu is set to give an address to the Israeli public on Wednesday evening, so shortly. Uh, So Dear listener, this may be entirely OBE by the time that you hear it. Yeah, I feel like we'll be talking about it again next week. Uh, but um, but I'll keep tuned for that, certainly. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, let us transition now, as we so often do, from a disaster overseas to a disaster for someone back here at home. We have seen a very, very productive couple of weeks, or eventful couple of weeks, I should say, in the various litigation matters surrounding former President Trump. A lot of actions on briefing, a lot of actions on arguments, motions to dismiss, gag orders flying back and forth, lots of things happening on the litigation front. But perhaps the most important developments have been actions by several of Trump's co-defendants in the Fulton County matters. We now have seen four of them essentially plea out and agree to cooperate with prosecutors. Uh, This is both Scott Hall, who's involved in the Coffee County uh, scheme element that falls under the Fulton County indictment. Um, We are also seeing Sidney Powell and Ken Chedsbro and Jenna Ellis, three lawyers involved with various aspects of the January 6th scheme, uh, mostly relating kind of the fake electors element of the scheme, but not exclusively. Uh, Jenna Ellis involved with a variety of things that she was kind of Rudy Giuliani's right-hand woman for a lot of litigation and other actions surrounding the election. And then we got reporting yesterday that's now confirmed by multiple outlets indicating that former chief of staff Mark Meadows at some point earlier this year or late last year accepted a limited immunity arrangement with the federal prosecutors heading up the January 6th trial here in Washington, D.C. in federal court. Uh, pursuant to which he has talked to them several times and has testified to a grand jury at least once where he reportedly told the grand jury that he did not, in fact, believe the claims that the election, 2020 election was rigged and had communicated as much to former President Trump in the days following the election and leading up to January 6th. This strikes me as a pretty eventful set of witnesses, an important set of witnesses to now be cooperating with prosecutors at different levels. Quinta, what could the ramifications be for the broader accountability picture here? What does this mean for these two trials and potentially broader questions about other accountability mechanisms that might be in play around the 2020 elections and the events of January 6th? So I'm going to focus on the Meadows uh, news to, to start because I understand less about how the Georgia DA's office works in, in Fulton County. So yeah, so as you said, it seems like Meadows has a statutory use immunity uh, that compelled him to testify before the grand jury uh, rather than a sort of full-fledged cooperation agreement, contra some speculation on social media. I think that's important to, to make clear. So use immunity is a lot more limited. But the aspect of this case that was always going to be tough for Jack Smith's office to prove was the mens rea element, right? Um, you know, did Trump know that he had lost the election? Whether or not you believe that that really mattered, um, it definitely mattered to some extent in terms of proving these charges against him. And Meadows' testimony could potentially go a long way toward helping Smith's office out with that. Um, Meadows is obviously, he's the chief of staff during this period. He's very, very close to Trump, like both in terms of their relationship and like physically he is in the same room with him a lot of the time. So he can testify to what he was saying, what he was thinking, what he was told, right? 
And as you say, Scott, this ABC reporting, um, which Bloomberg matched, I believe, indicates that Meadows said that, you know, he he knew <laughs> that all this stuff was was bunk. And it seems like Trump probably did as well. Interestingly, it, uh, the ABC report at least sets out like a, just a sort of a, a long list of things that Meadows said in his book that he has now testified before a grand jury reportedly that are not true, uh, which is kind of funny. So I think that, you know, if I, I was so looking forward to reading it, though. I know. Yeah, it's a bummer. Um, I think, Scott, you suggested in our in our lawfare slack that maybe he'd he'd. Uh, gone forward with this because he was done with book sales. He's not. Yeah, you know, you see book sales peak and they begin to trickle (laughs) down. And at that point, you know, you slap a new afterword on that thing and you got a whole new edition you can sell all over again. Exactly. So I think that that's quite bad for Trump in the January 6th case. In the Georgia case, I mean, I think it's definitely good for Fannie Willis's office that uh, they're no longer going to have to deal with sort of trying the entire case ahead of time with Powell and Chesborough, which was what was going to have to happen because of uh, how they moved for uh, earlier trial under the Speedy Trial Act. Jenna Ellis, I'm less equipped to weigh in on because I think we actually don't know the details of what any kind of cooperation agreement that she may or may not have with the office. And so it's it's kind of tough to say. But it's definitely not looking good for Trump. I, I wouldn't say that I would be happy to be him right now. Yeah, I agree with that. And let me let me jump in and say uh, why I think Ellis, uh, Ellis probably even more so than Chesbro and Powell are pretty significant people to flip. Scott Hall really not that significant, like didn't make a big splash when it happened because it's such a narrow kind of self-segregated part of this broader conspiracy, the, the Coffee County bit. But the the other three people, you know, Powell and Chesbro were both very directly involved in a lot of actions coordinated by Rudy Giuliani. Uh, we had a lot of part of a lot of internal conversations, particularly around the fake electors effort and efforts to lobby state officials. So at a minimum, they are going to be in a very good position to talk about Rudy's mens rea, knowledge and intent, and to say what he was doing. That could result in, even if they can't say much about Trump himself, although both of them were in one not one-on-one, were in personal meetings with former President Trump. So they'll be able to talk a little bit about that. But even if they can't speak directly about that, they certainly are in a very good position to put additional pressure on Giuliani as one of these co-defendants in the Georgia trial. Um, that's going to increase pressure on him to take a plea deal and potentially cooperate uh, even. And he is somebody who seems more than anyone else would be able to fill in the picture of Trump's mens rea. They'll also be able to do a little bit about Trump, mostly indirectly, maybe a little bit directly. But this is one of those cases where to establish, you know, you're never going to have smoking gun evidence of mens rea. So you kind of want to have as much circumstantial evidence as possible. And in this case, that means a lot of people who saw a lot of, have a lot of consistent accounts about what Trump, Trump knew and what he believed. And so the more kind of people you can line up who can speak about this credibly, from internal conversations, even if only sporadic, even if only a little secondhand, while you know abiding by hearsay restrictions, like I, I think it actually is useful, but not nearly as useful as Meadows. Ellis is kind of just like an amped up version of that. Obviously, very close to Rudy. Who knows what she can say about Rudy? And it seems like she was much more involved directly with former President Trump, and so can play an even more credible role, or at least a broader scope role, in reporting on potentially direct conversations with him. We don't know 100%, but certainly her role suggests that she was directly involved. This is all part of the practical strategy we've been talking about for months, if not years at this point. This is always going to come down to how do we knock down the dominoes 
um, that as you get closer and closer to former President Trump. And now we are three rings out, I would say, right? These are people who are mostly one degree, except for Meadows, who is right next to the president. Everybody else is one degree removed from the president for the most part of these interactions. Jenna Ellis may be straddling the two circles a little bit. That is really precarious and a dangerous position for a criminal defendant to be in when your main defense hinges on what you believed at the time. And you've got all these people who might be able to testify otherwise. Um, it should be making the former president, I think, very nervous. So I think we all are in agreement. This is probably bad for former President Trump on the uh, former conspirator, now potential collaborator and government witness uh, front of these different people who have flipped uh, and his former chief of staff. But we've seen some other action in other areas, including a couple of motions to dismiss that are now out there for former President Trump in the January 6th case. Alan, you've taken a look at these. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts about them. Yeah, no, we're we're finally getting a, a a glimpse into what Donald Trump's legal strategy is, and and I think it's the uh, I think the technical term is it's the kitchen sink. We've just been getting a massive amount of legal filings uh, in the in the D.C. January sixth case from Trump. Um, three dropped on Monday alone. It's not entirely clear why there are three separate filings, other than you know they 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 were trying to avoid page limits. <laughs> not just that we've sort of earlier had. Um, a uh, a very interesting filing that that Quinta and Ben uh, wrote about on Lawfare about whether or not Article Two pr- gives Trump total immunity from criminal prosecution for anything that he did up to and on January sixth. You know, look, I I think these I think these run the gamut. You know, I, I, Quinta can speak more about um, this, but I think the the immunity argument is. There's a, there's a very serious issue there. I, it's not. I wouldn't say that Trump presented it in the most serious way, but you know, in in a case of this magnitude, courts are not just going to say, "Well, you didn't present the argument in exactly the right way, so we're only going to take what you said." Like they're actually trying to come up with the right with the right constitutional answer. And on the immunity question, it's it's actually tricky, right? Um, so there's like actual work to be done there. On some other things, um, I think there's just a lot of hell marys. Um, so for example, Trump. Uh, is arguing that the prosecution is selective in the January 6th case, um, and it's all political, and he's trying to get the case dismissed on those grounds. And while selective prosecution is a thing you can claim and occasionally works, it works very rarely. Um, uh, We'll link to a great, I keep wanting to say Twitter thread, but I guess I have to say X thread by uh, Carissa Byrne-Hessick, who's a, a UNC law professor and an expert on prosecutorial discretion where she just like, eviscerates this motion for its ridiculousness. Also a motion from Trump that this all violates his First Amendment because all he was doing was petitioning the government for grievances, which is kind of funny because, of course, he is the president. So like, who is he petitioning exactly? Also, conspiracy is not petitioning. Anyway, the, the point of this is you know, you have this big muddy ball of legal issues, all of which will have to be worked out, You know, some of which are you know, meritorious, or at least in the sense that they're plausible, some of which are not very plausible, you know, all of which need to be dealt with, all of which raise potentially interesting issues, because of course, Trump isn't just any defendant, he is the former president of the United States. And so kind of almost by definition, any claim he makes is unprecedented and needs to be taken seriously. And and all of this is in the context of what Trump's overall strategy is. And that is not to win in the traditional sense. He's not really trying to get his case dismissed. He's not really trying to win uh, in trial, because he probably realizes that, or at least his lawyers realize that that's not the most likely outcome. Rather, what he's trying to do is delay through this blizzard of motions, through interlocutory appeals. He's trying to delay the trial until 2024, 
when he, you know, gets elected president, like that's his plan, at which point he can make the case go away. And all of this performative stuff he's doing in court, well, all of this stuff he's doing in court is performative. Uh, and in the sense that it is really signaling to his base, he's using it to fundraise on, he's using it to stay in the media cycle to get a bunch of earned media. And so you have the situation, something I think I talked about a few weeks ago when we, when we you know, last checked in on Trump, of um, someone who's just not playing by the rules. He's not playing the same game as a standard criminal defendant. And that puts just a lot of tension on the you know, criminal justice process. Because you know you do have to take his argument seriously, but by doing that, you're playing into what he's actually trying to do, which is just delay, 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 and it's it's just a very tricky issue that there's no obvious, you know, way of of resolving. I think that's right, and I think that it's worth underlining what you said about the sort of the variety of of motions to dismiss Allen that some of them are serious and some of them are not serious. Um, but it is worth underlining. Um, and this is a point that uh, Ben Wittes and Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post have made that the the thing that's really important about the immunity argument is both that there is a serious argument here. I agree that Trump sort of makes it in the most Trumpy way possible, but this is a legitimate thing that the courts are going to have to rule on. But it's also important that the because of the specific immunity argument being made, it's subject to interlocutory appeal, which means that depending on how speedily uh, the appellate courts and potentially the Supreme Court want to handle this, it could really, really delay things in the federal January 6th case. Um, and so in that sense, in the, you know, describing kind of the game that Trump is playing as a, a game of delay, I think that that is extremely important to understand. From the collapse of institutions at home to the collapse of institutions abroad, let's talk about NATO and its potentially uncertain future, at least under a Republican administration in 2024. Uh, so as Scott mentioned at the top of the show, um, there's been increasing chatter from prominent Republicans running for president, uh, most notably Donald Trump, of course, but also importantly, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who, depending on your polls, is either second, third, or fourth behind Trump. There's a lot of you know, rumbling in the past few weeks uh, about um, some pretty dramatic changes to American foreign policy that these individuals would make while in office. A lot of this focuses on America's membership and de facto leadership of NATO, which Donald Trump was, of course, famously skeptical of, uh, viewing NATO as a sort of transactional relationship in which America was, quote unquote, constantly being ripped off by NATO members who, you know, in Trump's defense, were probably not uh, living up to their defense spending commitments. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is, I think, trying to even out isolationist Donald Trump, is going quite far, um, saying that he would, you know, seriously consider pulling out of NATO entirely, maybe even the U United Nations. You know, Trump and, and Ramaswamy have been getting some some pushback from uh, other Republicans in the field uh, for their isolationist stance. Most, most notably, Nikki Haley, who is kind of the the uh, the the neocon uh, of the bunch. But it's not like the other Republican candidates have particularly sober foreign policies either. Um, I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, or in the last couple of months, we talked about this, how it's increasingly it's becoming an article of faith that once the Republicans take the White House, it's time to bomb Mexican drug cartels, uh, which you know is an interesting way of uh, conducting foreign relations. So a lot of ferment on the Republican side here. So you know, let me let me turn to you, Scott. How seriously should we take? the promises of a candidate Trump or a candidate Ramaswamy 
you know, if, you know, obviously Trump is a bit more of a known candidate, a known quantity, but, you know, if either of these two become president in, you know, 2025, should we expect that like the first thing they do is actually going to pull out of NATO or is there just going to be a lot of, you know, you know, Sturm und Drang like we saw in the last administration about this stuff? It's a fair question. And I don't think we a hundred percent know what I would say. is I think we have to take the possibility seriously. Now they both say they would essentially use the threat of exit to try and get Europeans to step up in terms of their own defense spending, although it's worth noting Europeans have actually made a fair amount of progress in this direction, perhaps not as much as some. Um, and there are people who say we should uh, you know, be striving for par- – they should be striving to essentially replace the United States. The United States doesn't need to have the security umbrella over Europe, which I think is not realistic, particularly with the the nature of uh, you know security conditions in Europe and its relation to Russia. Regardless, the key point being, you know, it's not clear they would withdraw day one, but they seem willing to do it. At least Trump certainly seemed willing to do it. Even by the account of his own former national security advisor, John Bolton, he he only didn't do it because he was talked out of it by John Bolton. Now, maybe that's a little self-aggrandizing, but nonetheless, it was something that Trump seriously considered. And we know he is an impetuous person who is fairly skeptical of international alliances, um, and this one in particular. And frankly, I think has a bit of a personal beef on this one. You know, he really was very personally involved in discussions with NATO around funding deals and other arrangements. I don't think he is somebody who is thinking about this at a, you know, big strategic historical level. Uh, he's also somebody who does not think Russia is a threat or should be perceived as a threat very clearly. Like he's been pretty straightforward about that. Um, and so, you know, I think it's quite likely that he might be willing to take the step because it's just through the lens through which he views it. He does not actually value this membership that much. Vivek's a much more of a wild card. Look, his whole political posture has been to be try and be a little Trumpier than Trump with a little bit of a tech bro sort of gloss on it. Uh, and so I don't know how much of this is that and how much of this is actually genuine sort of worldview. We've talked before in the podcast how he does actually try and articulate a worldview. That worldview d- didn't entail withdrawing from NATO or the United Nations, as I recall, though it may have expressed some skepticism about the value of them. So I, I don't know if he's even saying right now we should withdraw from these things. I think he's saying it's not ridiculous to put it on the table as a discussion, which is uh, you know a little bit of a dangerously nuanced point for a political candidate to adopt. But that is my sense of what he's saying. The key point to bear in mind in all of this is as a legal matter – if either one were to be elected president, they almost certainly could do it. The Constitution doesn't tell us who, how we exit treaties. It only has procedures for entering into them. But uh, the practice over most of the 20th century has been that the executive branch has unilaterally withdrawn from treaties uh, and has been able to do so without consulting with Congress, without needing authorization from Congress, so long as it does so pursuant to the terms of the treaty uh, or in cases of other international legal violations like a material breach in some cases, things like that. Uh, and we've seen the Trump administration exercise that authority in regards to the INF treaty, in regards to the Open Skies Treaty, uh, and a number of other treaty arrangements. More, perhaps most importantly, the Office of Legal Counsel in the waning days of the Trump administration, this happened, I think, the day before Christmas Eve, uh, 2020, issued a pair of legal opinions essentially saying, we think this is exclusively the president's authority. Congress could not even restrict it if it tried. And that's specifically in relation to a requirement Congress had enacted for the Open Skies Treaty that effectively would, re- would have required several months notice before trying to exit the Open Skies Treaty. The Trump administration disregarded that and exited the Open Skies Treaty anyway. Uh, there are ways that Congress 
could, I think, that I've articulated in prior writings and that Congress is actually contemplating right now. Uh, it's actually included in the Senate version of the NDAA to try and push back on this legal view and set up a legal challenge that could vindicate a narrower view of presidential authority and a broader view of congressional authority in this space. And I can go into more detail on that. Um, but the key point is that unless Congress acts on that proposal, the kind of consensus legal view is that, yeah, the president probably could take this step. And it's not clear there would be any avenue by which a court could intervene, let alone would be likely to intervene to stop him. Um, so that is alone is a reason why I think we should take these things seriously, because it really might all come down to the views, uh, no matter how eccentric, of just one person. I have to say, what I find kind of weird about this is that like during the Trump administration, it was the sort of idea that, you know, others weren't pulling their weight in NATO in the US should maybe pull out as well was kind of a, a weird Trump obsession. But, you know, since, say, February 2022, I feel like NATO's use has really been it's we've, we've had a great use case uh, for, for why it's like good to have NATO. Um, there were a lot of arguments about that before the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. I think there are fewer arguments now. Obviously, the alliance has expanded. Um, so it's like a, a particularly weird idea that the U.S. should pull out, and I think particularly disconnected from the reality of what's actually happening in the world, right? I, I certainly <laughs> feel that way. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that like this is the wrong group for sustained NATO skepticism. And look, I I want to be clear, right? Like, I, I think this is an issue, I mean, as are so many issues in today's politics, where like, the just the, the nonsense that one hears from the Republican Party can blind one to like, the kernel of good, fair debate, right? That is to be had, right? I mean, there are serious people who think that America's overall security and international posture has been just too aggressive for the last several decades and that NATO is, you know, you know, doing more harm than good. And like, there's, there's a version of the world in which, you know, one should listen to those views very seriously and, and consider them whether one agrees with them or not. And it's just, it's unfortunate that, you know, the, the, the standard bearers for this view are, you know, people like Trump and, and Ramaswamy. Yeah, I mean, and look, there are serious elements of a critique of NATO that should be taken seriously that I give some credence to, including the idea that NATO needs to carry its own weight more and the kind of underlying logic that we've seen in the kind of academic e versions of this argument is that it's really about Asia. We need to focus on China as the real competitive threat. Europe is should be able to handle its own situation at this point. We're overcommitted there and undercommitted in Asia and that this is a uh, you know, a big distraction from that. You know, that's Elbridge Colby is kind of the most prominent person who's made an argument more or less along those lines. Uh, we've seen various iterations of it being put forward by a lot of groups that are kind of Trump aligned or in that sort of orbit, that kind of more isolationist band of conservative politics and foreign policy. Um, folks, we've seen those views come up, which I don't think Elbridge would is necessarily belongs in that camp as firmly. Um, but he's certainly been a prominent advocate for, for an argument along those lines. There's something to that. Look, the, the Obama administration openly said, we need to pivot to Asia. The Biden administration has very clearly said China is the major threat. Um, I, I think the question is, does recognizing something being the premier challenge in your foreign policy means that you have to ignore other challenges or that you can't face more than one challenge at a time that may require some balancing and calibration and how you weigh which is the greatest and which is the least is, is a is a hard budge. I think a lot of European states remain very concerned about Russia 
with good reason, as demonstrated by recent events in Ukraine. So, you know, I think the security umbrella that NATO provides is is an important one strategically for stability in Europe, which is important for the United States for a lot of reasons, including markets, uh, alliances, historical ties, cultural ties, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it's it's not an easy set of commitments to walk away from, much as we're talking about with Pivot Asia in the Middle East context. You know, you, you've got these interests and commitments. They don't always align themselves in a convenient way or convenient hierarchy where you can throw them all into the one that you agree may be the most significant one. And so that's the reason why I think this alliance, even if it might require some fine tuning, still has a has a role. The last question I have before we close out on this, and I know, Scott, you have thoughts on this, is, you know, again, right, the Biden administration is very strong on NATO, very strong on the UN, very strong on the rules-based international order. And, you know, probably it's more likely than not that he will remain president um, rather than Trump or Ramaswamy, Um, you know, God help us all. But I am curious, do you think that just the existence of this view and it's increasing mainstreaming in one of the major two political parties, even if they are out of power at the moment. Like, does that by itself do damage to these relationships, right? I mean, you know, obviously Trump did a huge amount of damage to our international relationships, and a lot of Biden's role has been to repair that. But just the possibility that you could have another Trump or a Trump-like figure, I, I mean, I got to assume that makes our NATO partners just nervous, even though they're glad that the current president is President Biden. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the thing to bear in mind is that these alliances, these agreements, their main function is a deterrent effect that is inherent in the threat of the use of force, right? And that threat has multiple components. One is the capability to act. The other is the willingness to act. And so if you have a president who may yet be elected or a political party that may yet to come into power that is not willing to back up its treaty commitments with a serious contemplation, at least, of the use of force or other sorts of assistance, that that really poses a problem for the alliance and what it's intended to achieve in this deterrent effect. And the fact that you have major voices that have that view is a problem. Um, you know, I have no doubt the deterrent effect of NATO was weaker during the Trump years because he very openly uh, was skeptical of the idea that it was worth coming to the defense of European allies, even though you have a treaty commitment that suggests it should seriously be contemplated. Article 5 doesn't actually hard commit the United States to come to the military assistance despite widespread perceptions that it does. That's actually just not what the language says. But, you know, the whole idea is that you have to take it seriously. And the United States has often signaled that, yeah, we will respond militarily, even if we're not strictly obligated to do by the text of Article 5, because we need to send that deterrent effect. And walking back from that weakens it. Um, there's not much you can do there. I will say in terms of exiting the treaty, which it's worth noting is a potentially irrevocable issue because the threshold for getting back into treaties is so high these days, two thirds of the Senate, very hard threshold to meet. That is something that I do think there is something that you could do, particularly Congress can do, uh, which Congress overwhelming numbers supportive of NATO more so now than ever. I have no doubt very few people, a limited contingent in Congress is actually interested in exiting NATO. And there are affirmative steps they can do. Right now, there is legislation that's included in the Senate version of the NDAA. It's actually based on an idea I wrote about in lawfare years ago um, that essentially would say, put a statutory bar saying the president cannot withdraw from this treaty. And if the president tries to withdraw from this treaty, we are pre-authorizing a lawsuit to challenge his authority to do so. I really think that's the best tool Congress has available to it to try and 
um, deter this sort of action because the president's authority to withdraw from these treaties, while it's established an executive branch of views and executive branch practice, it's never been squarely affirmed by the courts. It's constitutionally, in my view, fairly questionable if you look at historical practice and constitutional text. And it's, it is, you know, vulnerable for that sort of pushback if Congress sets the conditions up to actually make a lawsuit a feasible reality. And I think it can do that through measures like this. The real question is just the political will to do it especially because it's such it's a somewhat orthodox thing to do. But I do think it's the secret in this sort of scenario. Like I said, right now, Senate, actually, that, that proposal after spending several years in the Senate has passed Senate Foreign Relations Committee with overwhelming bipartisan support. It's passed the Senate. It's in the Senate NDAA. It was not included in the House NDAA where it wasn't really considered. So now the question is, does it come out in conference? And that is a big question mark. It's a big black box process, honestly, for a lot of us on the outside about what does and doesn't make it through. But if that were to make it through, that would be a, a major sign that at least the United States isn't going to exit NATO. Maybe it won't t- treat its commitments as seriously under a Trump or Ramaswamy administration, um, but at least won't be able to exit NATO as easily. And that should provide some assurance and confidence, at least in the longer term, to European allies and NATO allies. Absent that, I think they have reason to be nervous. Well, folks, that is the end of our time together this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the weeks to come. Alan, what do you have for us today? So I have a recent small piece that was published in the humor magazine McSweeney's by Tiffany Lee, who's actually a law professor at University of California, San Francisco Law School. And also, I did not realize this until I read this of hers, a truly gifted satirist. The uh, piece is titled, Statement from the University on Current Tensions in the Place You're Probably Thinking About When You Read This. And I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs. Dear students, we are saddened by the tremendous loss of life in many of the places you've read about. You know the ones. We don't need to name them here. And it just goes on for several more paragraphs. And it is simultaneously one of the funniest and most enraging things I have ever read. It is incredible satire uh, of the sort of university statements and the whole mess the university have gotten themselves into in the last three weeks and more generally over the past few years. Um, 10 out of 10 satire, no notes, highly recommended. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I have something a little more serious sticking to my my brand. Our, 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 our in-house bummer. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, that. that's me. Uh, so there is a great article in the New York Times Magazine called The Botched Hunt for the Gilgo Beach Killer by Robert Kolker. This is about that guy who was arrested a few months ago uh, for a series of murders of bodies of sex workers that were found in uh, Gilgo Beach on Long Island. And the article sort of does a really striking walkthrough of why exactly it took so long for the police to crack this case. Um, these bodies were found in around uh, 2010, um, 2011, um, and all of the evidence that was needed seems to have just been sitting there. And the the article is a pretty striking tale of a police department that is deeply, deeply corrupt in kind of every possible way you could think of um, and walks through how it is that that really kept the department from cracking the case. Um, There's a bizarre twist where 
President Obama nominating Loretta Lynch to serve as attorney general ends up kind of being the domino that sets all of this into motion, um, which was a, just a weird little twist. Uh, but I highly recommend this to anyone who's sort of interested in, in true crime or has been following this case. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am going to give an endorsement that is long overdue, but I have a newfound appreciation for uh, dipping back into the cocktail annals that I have not visited in a while. I have been in a bit of a dry season, as folks may have noticed, uh, in part because I am in a big healthy kick these days. And so trying not to drink and eat uh, as unhealthy as I used to, and that does mean less cocktails, sadly. Um, but I, we had some dinner guests over this past week for the first time in a long time. I made a batch of cocktails, which were delightful. The Vocare, the classic, highly recommend. And I, in going through my batch, I realized I was low on several of my favorite Amaros and mixers that I almost universally get from one Amaro distillery here in Washington, D.C., and was forced to use the much more common available ingredients like Campari that are more traditional. But I have found, as I realized as I was forced to turn to them, I like far less than these locally produced Amaro. So I'm going to ho- go ahead and throw an endorsement out there to Don Chicho and Figli. This is a Amaro distillery here in Washington, D.C. in our very own Ivy City. Um, they're very fun to visit on Saturdays where they have a bar open where you can try their like two dozen different offerings between different cordials and Amaros and other liqueurs that they offer. They also do batch cocktails, which I haven't tried, but I'm sure they are good. I love their Luna, which is their Campari analog. They've got great analogs for a lot of traditional Amaros and Amari uh, to try out. It is just absolutely fantastic. And I am bummed that I'm out of it and that I've now I've noticed I'm going to go out and get a new batch this weekend and encourage folks to do the same if you're in the D.C. area. And I do think I've seen them in liquor stores and other places in other parts of the country. So keep an eye out for them there as well, even if they might be a little lesser known brand. And with that, we are at the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For details, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.